Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8.com. Saying that the nature of social media is different than previous uh, technological developments in the way that they interact with society, which at first I was like, Ugh, you know, it's sort of that like generational divide. But she was saying, you know, people thought that the that novels were going to like ruin society. People thought that the telephone was going to ruin society, namely because teenagers are consuming these things. Welcome to Needlestack. I'm Aubrey Byron, a producer on this podcast. And I'm Shannon Reagan, also a producer on Needlestack. Today we're here to talk about a symposium on OSINT we just attended uh, in St. Louis, Missouri, our hometowns, the 2023 Symposium on Open Source, Social Media, and National Security. That's right. So this event was yesterday, May 30th, 2023. Um, at St. Louis University, um, SLU is part of the Midwest Intelligence Community Center for Academic Excellence. Uh, this is part of a group of intelligence community centers for academic excellence. Um, they're a recipient of this grant, and the symposium is part of the grant program. Um, so it was a really good conference. There was a large portion of it that was more focused on I would say recruiting and networking for students going into the field. Um, there were undergrad students, grad students, also a lot of people in geospatial intelligence. Um, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency has had a large footprint in St. Louis for decades. So a lot of students were, I think, funneling into that field uh, or that type of work. But this was to examine the role of OSINT kind of intersecting with those more traditional intelligence gathering methods, especially the emergence of social media intelligence or SOCMINT uh, and how to embrace and adapt to that change in the OSINT landscape. Yeah, I think the SOCMINT element in particular, which is obviously just a sub-discipline of OSINT, um, that's something we cover on our blog a lot. We've been covering on this podcast. And so that was one part that I was happy to see a couple panels on in particular. Yeah, uh, there was, a, there were a few panels on, there was one on GeoInt uh, and one on OPSEC as related to OSINT and SOCMET. I think especially for younger people who are used to having social media and the internet as part of their lives and in fact live a lot of their lives on social media um, their perception of privacy is different. Their perception of communication is different, what they decide to share, um, and how that can play out in operational security measures, but also the benefit that it can give to young people for harnessing the power of OSINT on social media because they have this you know, longstanding 
uh, knowledge of how it operates, how to use it, and that they can adapt to new platforms as they come out. You know, it's not just going to be certainly not Facebook anymore, uh, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and whatever the next thing is. Yeah, there were a couple speakers, um, a speaker and a panelist from each from the FBI. And something that I thought was interesting from the day was talking about uh, both of them kind of recalibrated from what they used to spoke uh, they used to focus on which was international counterterrorism mm-hmm. to more domestic um dealing with the radicalization of youth here and one thing they mentioned was basically the investigation of say a mass shooter which is unfortunately very relevant in the US usually starts on social media because they're not really connecting to people in real life. And that is where you're going to find a lot of the like, what, why, when, where, and who knew. Yeah. Uh, I think Susan Brockhouse, who was on one of the panels, uh, FBI uh, analyst, I believe, she was talking about kind of the history of, of Al-Qaeda and then ISIS and the different ways that they operated. And then kind of as ISIS has fallen out, um, or like lost popularity on social media, which is such a strange phrase to say, um, the nature of radicalization has kind of become untethered to any group that anyone can become radicalized at any time because they're consuming content. They might be in really like niche forums or things like that, that are just unknown to the investigators. Um, and so there's this very like random remoteness to, uh, you know, who gets radicalized and when, but it often is, uh, young men, you know, that end up acting on it as well. I think that was some of the really interesting stuff was, you know, we, a lot of people, I think, you know, get in their own lane a lot of, we think about OSINT this way and for these applications. Uh, At the event, it made very clear, like, just the wide, wide world of OSINT. Um, Thinking about counterterrorism is different, you know, now than when we were in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Um, That counterterrorism is, you know, more domestic, I would say, in, in its focus, maybe not entirely, but that that is a large component for it in peacetime. Um, The application of OSINT in understanding migration, uh, understanding poverty in cities. There's another really interesting example that one of the uh, graduate students tipped me off to was that the Smithsonian, I have to find the name, the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative, that this is a unit essentially uh, out of the Smithsonian that's working to rescue cultural artifacts, uh, particularly in Ukraine right now. I was reading an article on this after she kind of gave me the tip. And, you know, part of the Russian invasion is on the premise that Ukraine is not an independent country or that it does, it like never was its own nation. It doesn't have its own history and so erasing that actual history is part of the invasion itself. So cultural sites are being targeted. And the Smithsonian is using you know, a range of intelligence methods to understand uh, what is being targeted or what has been damaged, what can be rescued from these sites. Some of that comes from satellite imagery, but sometimes satellite imagery misses things and they need to see you know, the social media account of people on the ground that you know, even though the building looks intact from above, the windows are blown out. You need to go in and actually see, you know, what, what the damage is. That actually reminds me of one of the articles that we covered in the OSINT News Roundup a while ago, which was about this kind of cultural fight uh, that the Russians are conducting to try to sow this sort of Soviet um, loyalty among Ukrainians was to erect 
and sponsor um, statues that mm -hmm. honor famous Russians and this sort of idea that you are Russian. And I thought yeah. that was really fascinating um, just because I think all over the world, sort of the debate of whether statues matter, whether that's mm -hmm. a relevant thing. And I thought that, that it was very explicitly part of their strategy was interesting. Yeah. Who would think in 2023, we'd be arguing about, you know, marble and bronze statues. <laughs> um, <laughs> another application that I hadn't really thought about that was interesting to me from the GeoInt panel was talking about using GeoInt for disaster relief. That oh, yeah. geolocating photos um, with the earthquake in Haiti, the hurricane in Puerto Rico, and being able to get to disaster relief areas, especially when some of those, especially I think on those islands when the internet or goes out, cell phone coverage becomes spotty because of the storm or the disaster. And yeah. that's really not something that we've covered on this podcast or talked about very much that I thought was fascinating. Well, yeah, I think because the flip side is also true. Like, you know, you might be able to see storm damage, but you don't necessarily know where people are if the you know roads and bridges become accessible, which is where I think OSINT, particularly SOCMET, you know, come into big play um, in these disaster recovery um, situations or really any crisis where you can't get people on the ground, but people are nonetheless there. So you can get information out from, from on the ground, but you don't necessarily have your own representatives in the field. Um, I think it was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kuderka who was talking about what he sees as a uh, OSINT success. Um, and he said that, you know, using OSINT, I believe, to either take boots off the ground, like knowing, you know, where not to put people, how to keep people out of harm's way, minimizing, you know, collateral damage in terms of, you know, civilian populations that are in, you know, these conflict areas. Um without, you know, having to send in infantry or anything like that. Like the power of the information and the intelligence that it yields is really, really important. Yeah, that um, was from the OPSEC panel. And I actually, I really enjoyed that panel as well. It was at the end of the day and I think the attendance was a little bit lower, but it was one of yeah. the best. I know, it's like, stick around, stick around. Yeah, no, wait. <laughs> um, but... Because we've also been covering sort of these really persistent OPSEC failures that are honestly an embarrassment at this point to the Russian military, but also causing mass casualties. Um, mm -hmm. People uploading photos, soldiers uploading photos to Vikinkakte and that place being geolocated and targeted, which mm -hmm. the fact that VK doesn't strip out the EXIF data like most other major social media sites is fascinating to me on its own and honestly yeah. inexplic inexplicable to me. But <laughs> um, yeah, this kind of persistent issue. I mean, it, in the very beginning of the war, I remember Abel coming on this podcast, one of our mm -hmm. uh, guests who's at Authenticate and talking about soldiers um, logging on to Tinder and other yeah. apps. Got to got to make those connections wherever you are. Yeah, and utilizing their location. So that idea, uh, but one of the things I've been reading is sort of, you know, if in a future potential conflict, if we were ever to get there with China, China won't have this issue because they have severely restricted social media use. 
Yeah. And at least won't have it to the degree, but but Americans don't. And it could be a vulnerability that could be mm-hmm. exploited against us. And that came up and they talked about one of the things that was interesting was family training. Mm-hmm. So not getting on Facebook and posting, oh, no, daddy's leaving to go to Afghanistan tomorrow. Yeah, on this day. Yeah. Yes. Because then yeah. they know when a deployment is. Um, security settings, who can see your post. Mm-hmm. They also talked about, though, that for younger soldiers, how important phones are to them and that it is Mm -hmm. a morale issue that you can't just take away the cell phone. Yeah. Yeah. I was bowled over by that response, like, you know, from a lieutenant colonel that's like, no, these kids really love social media and for unit cohesion, like that's part of it. Like for them to be engaged in their role, they kind of have to engage through social media. I was like, Oh my God, like it's a very like sensitive and nuanced answer that I just, I did not expect. Um, because yeah, you know, these are happening. I think the Russian instances have been, you know, very infamous lately, but it happens on all sides. Each side is exploiting, you know, the others as a vulnerability. Um, but you know, that there is a reason that not only it just accidentally persists, uh, you know, I think one of the other respondents was saying, you know, you forget, you go too quickly, you don't hit the encryption thing, you post too broadly. Um, you know, mostly it's just in, innocent mistakes. Think, you know, phishing emails, like you just clicked on it, whoops, and then it's out there. Um, but that it is almost not an intentional mistake, but that not clamping down on it entirely is is an intentional decision by the military. I think that response was especially interesting because it had followed um, the sort of interesting panel that had happened a little bit earlier that I think missed the mark somewhat. It was a student-led panel, but, and I, I was kind of excited because we had just talked to Chris Kemp last week on this podcast, and he was talking about how, you know, just how quick kids are to pick up OSINT in his mm-hmm. experience, that they have the social media know-how, they understand the platforms, and they're just fast to pick it up. They're digital natives. They understand it. And I thought maybe that would be the focus of this panel, but it was a little bit more sort of, it it covered these generational divides, which, as you said in his answer, a little bit of just how important and ubiquitous social media use is for younger people in particular. But it was also came off a little finger waggy of like, you're just sharing too much online and you're never going to get clearance, which is important if that's... yeah something a career path that you want to follow but it did seem like a missed opportunity to talk about like okay well how could we leverage that social media use right as a yeah as a boon to you know to OSIT work um yeah yeah there was a lot of not so much finger wagging but at the very front of the show um advice that I was not expecting when I sat down in an OSINT conference, but then you remember, oh, this is a recruiting event. This is, you know, you're just entering your career. (laughs) So the advice was no nudes, no DWI, um, no, you know, be careful who you surround yourself with or who you trust. Um, And there were a couple others that was was just more like life advice, but also like you probably are going to have trouble passing a clearance check with some of these. Uh, or that they could be, you know, exploited by foreign agents or something like that. So that was interesting. And it caught me off guard. But then I was like, oh, right, this is this is the world that, you know, OSINT at the government level, you know, exists in. So Um, one other piece of advice that came up earlier in the conference that 
I think it was just the quickness with which he said it. It was like, if you have one piece of advice for kids, what is it? And he was like, learn Python, like into the mic very quickly. (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) that I, I, I'm married to a software developer. So I enjoyed that piece of advice. But I do think, especially as we enter a world where AI is going to become a bigger part of our lives, so much of it is online that it really does become that it's not just software developers that need to learn a little bit of coding. Mm-hmm. It really, almost every job, is, yeah. it would be helpful. It will be useful to at least know the bare minimum. And I, yeah. I thought that was good advice. Yeah, there was, uh, there was definitely an emphasis on Python. I think a few other people, uh, the hashtag or the, you know, word of the day was foot stomp. Like I'm going to foot stomp this, you know, sentiment or whatever. A couple other people backed the Python advice. Um, they're like, we need computer scientists, you know, to deal with this, you know, massive amount of data that we collect every day and need to make sense of, like, we need that skill set. But a lot of the people, including people on stage are like, I was a liberal arts major. I did not think that I would end up working for the FBI, the NGA, you know, these, you know, seemingly highly technical or like, you know, intelligence agencies uh, that a history major, an English major, whatever, don't necessarily see themselves in. For that like skill set, they were saying the ability to understand master narrative in combination with the kind of you know bits and pieces of uh, you know open source information that you're collecting is really valuable, especially in the nature of interrogating the information that you get. Uh, I think Jay Greenberg, the guy that opened uh, as the keynote. Uh, was saying that, you know, we're just used to all the intelligence that we get, you have to interrogate the intelligence. Um, You know, if you're working with a foreign friendly or a foreign, it's complicated. Uh, He said that, you know, you have to question, like, why are they sharing this intelligence with me? Why are they sharing it now? Why are they sharing it in this way? Like, there might be some ulterior motive um, that could taint this information that I'm getting and how I should choose to respond to it. There's so much data in OSINT that it's hard to interrogate every piece of that. Um, but having pe- the combination of computer scientists and you know liberal arts-minded people that can take the big story and the finer points and make sense of it all together is you know what's going to make this emerging field work. That was actually the other thing that I wanted to, to touch on. Definitely the social media aspect, somewhat even the OSINT. There was just a lot of time spent on like what is OSINT? What is social media? Which, you know, we kind of do too, just depending on, you know, the, you don't know who the, you know, who's listening, the maturity level. Um, but there was like a phrase of like, you know, social media will likely be around for a long time. It's like, well, yeah, like this is here to stay. Like it just felt like it was kind of questioning, is this a fad? Like is OSINT a fad? Is Sockman a fad? It's like, no, this is just like how, things are going to be done now. Like this is a, a tenant of, of intelligence. Yeah. There were a couple of things like that, that felt like maybe five or even 10 years out of date. Yeah. <laughs> sort of, um, statements like, yeah, no, it definitely is. Um, you mentioned yeah. the definition, the first keynote did give a definition, which I thought was interesting. And I, we have talked about this on the podcast several times And I think it's one of the most fascinating things about OSINT that this isn't settled, that the parameters and even the definition isn't completely settled. But the definition he gave, which I wrote down, was um, information that we want to synthesize, analyze, and make a course of action based on, which Mm -hmm. we have talked a lot about the analysis 
sometimes people just think about collection. They just think about how it's gathered and not the analysis portion that actually creates intelligent. But his definition of the course of action, I think mm-hmm. is equally important that we haven't focused as much on, on this podcast is that it is really for decision makers and whether or not that's the president of the United States or a foreign policy expert to create foreign policy off of, or if it's a trust and safety team on a private company creating protocols, it really is meant to spur a reaction. Yeah. Yeah. I think we always end up like touching on this. Like a few of our guests have emphasized like the importance of being able to write a good report or a good intelligence product. Um, include a table of contents, uh, use visuals, like do it in a way that people, people are going to consume this, even if you used, you know, all these, you know, tech bits and bytes to, you know, pull it together. Um, you are giving it to a person to make a decision. So it needs to be, you know, helping them make the right one in a way that they can understand. One thing I wanted to jump back to was, you know, you're talking about the generational divide, uh, that was at the conference and is in, you know, the world and industry of OSINT. Um, you know, a lot of the presenters were middle-aged or older. Uh, a lot of the attendees were, you know, college or young adults. Uh, there was one speaker uh, that was that what I thought was kind of a no. yeah, that was kind of an odd fit for you know an OSINT segment, uh, national security symposium. Uh, I think her name was Liz Chiarello. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Sorry, Liz. Uh, we loved your presentation. And uh, she was presenting more from a sociology um, mindset on how we use social media and how young people use social media. And she had done this experiment with a group of her students um, at SLU that she asked them to delete their favorite app off of their phone for two days and just kind of report how it changed their daily life. And she gave several examples of students that were like, oh, you know, the sun was brighter and, you know, the grass smelled greener and whatever. Um, At which, which point was little, I was like, a little skeptical, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> it, was like, mm-hmm. it was a little rah-rah. Yeah. Like we should all just toss our phones in the river. But then <laughs> the woods <laughs> in harmony. <laughs> High altitudes. Yeah. Um, but then she, to her credit, her last example was from a student that was like, because this time was bullshit. And here's why. Uh, that the student was like, this just goes to show why, you know, the older generation, namely college professors, don't understand like what social media is. I use it in all of these positive ways. I felt horribly disconnected from the people that I love, the groups that I'm engaged in, um, and the way that I live my life. And it's just like strong arming of like, oh, you're doing it wrong. Like, you need to see the other way. Uh, and I think she did really take it to heart, like, okay, like, you know, this is, this is also a response. This is part of the, you know, kind of the experiment that we did. Um, so I thought that was great insight and goes to show that, especially for people that are building teams of analysts and researchers, like part of that diversity is also age diversity. The way that young people use technology is very different than, you know, people over, (laughs) I won't say old because I would fall in this category, even people over the age of 30 and 35. Um, people that have lived with social media and the internet, they knew no other way from the time that they were born. They're going to have a much different experience in conducting OSINT than, you know, people of older generations. Yeah. Which I do think there is a little piece of that, you know, you do need to understand the app that you're investigating on. 
Mm-hmm. That's a particular time on it while you're like, let me crack this case. Like it's probably not going to go well. Exactly. So I do think that that can be an asset from some, especially younger people, but, um, she, in that talk and, and that, which I thought was a little bit of a valid critique from her student about, you know, older generations and their reluctance sort of toward mm-hmm. where the digital age is going. But um, the student described herself as a techno-optimist, yeah, which is a new term to me and I thought was really interesting. However, um, she also talked about the ways in which social media can and is sometimes being used to exploit inequalities that mm-hmm. already exist. And um, she gave, rattled off this book list that I was... <laughs> struggling to write down because all of them sounded really fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. So Dr. Fiorello, we need your, (laughs) your Goodreads TBR, but yeah, there was was something else on that that I wanted to mention. Yeah. I think her, when she brought up the tech optimist versus tech pessimist, um, saying that the nature of social media is different than previous uh, technological developments in the way that they interact with society, which at first I was like, Ugh, you know, it's sort of that like generational divide. But she was saying, you know, people thought that the that novels were going to like ruin society. People thought that the telephone was going to ruin society, namely because teenagers are consuming these things. But she's like, the situation is different in, you know, 1955, a teenager, you know, kicking their bobby socks up on their bed, talking on the telephone to someone Versus a teenager now on social media where they can be advertised to, where anybody can contact them, where the companies are scraping their data and using that, uh, you know, in whatever way they deem appropriate. The nature of it is is very different um, and can have different types of ramifications on society than previous developments. Well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, there's actually um, a great Twitter thread, and I don't remember who to give credit to, but that went and found old... Um, newspaper clippings and articles of like the youths are destroying culture and they go (laughs) as far back as like the 1800s you know all the way through the 20th early 20th century you know talking about the greatest generation when they were younger they were gonna you know ruin society so it's absolutely true that every generation always does this and they always think that you know the use are out of control, but it also is true that the nature of communication is different when you're Mm -hmm. giving your data away. Yeah. Yeah. What is, what is the product? One thing that I did think that was interesting from the student panel was this mentioning of trading information for convenience. It's not that like Mm -hmm. people don't know that they're giving their data away. It's just sort of a willing trade that they're want to make to be able to Google that thing efficiently. Yeah. Hence the never reading the, you know, terms and conditions. Yes. Take it. I know you're taking it. Just take it. (laughs) The, some of the panelists did mention as well that the nature of social media information is kind of different than other OSINT. So it should maybe be treated with an extra grain of skepticism. Like a lot of other OSINT, Like a lot of other OSINT, there is some sort of like intermediary between the initial, uh, you know, information and the publishing of that information. With social media, it's much more raw. It's coming directly from the source. You can put it up, you know, in the moment, which is part of its value. 
but it does make you almost need to interrogate that source a bit more because it can be anybody or it could be nobody, which is also the scary part. Well, and speaking of uh, taking a grain of salt, there was a little bit of attention given to just how good deep fakes have gotten and what a problem that is going to present for verification, especially as they only get better and better. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, there was this phenomenon recently of the former president sharing an AI generated image of himself that looked real, mm-hmm. that it took journalists and analysts a moment to be like, wait. <laughs> Well, and same for the Elliot Higgins, uh, the you know, photo of Trump being arrested before I think Trump tweeted out this uh, or Truth socialized out this image of himself. Um, that Elliot Higgins was just sort of like, let's see what horrible things and strange things this can do, and to what quality. Um, and you know, shared it out with a small group, but then it got out. You know, oftentimes it was shared as like, you know, this is AI generated, but then it was also not. And there are still probably people that, you know, that cat can never be put back in the bag for. So, yeah, I think the idea too that the new disinformation won't necessarily be led by complete falsehoods, that mm-hmm. sometimes it is a series, a path, a series of relatively true statements that can lead you down the path of a false narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And goes back to understanding what is that master narrative of a certain, you know, country or group or whatever, that how does this fit or benefit their story, you know, and kind of understanding, analyzing it, you know, through that lens, but there are other lenses as well. Yeah. It's so um, complicated. Yeah. The example they gave in that too, was this whole end of tanks idea in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. One final note that I thought was a little bit of a positive was um, something we've talked about before, but this idea of psychological resilience and providing resources for people who um, investigate or constantly Mm -hmm. exposed to horrible imagery and their horrible imagery and also um, other taxing um, information in their research. And one panelist described that this is becoming part of their process is to help analysts deal with this, which I think we've talked about this on the private sector side with uh, Welton Chang and Pure Technologies. Mm-hmm. But I think in the past has been sort of like dismissed as a nice to have. So it was nice to hear that that is becoming a little more ingrained and helping yeah. people deal with what yeah. they've seen. Well, I'm sure the volume of, you know, people investigating those types of things and what they have to investigate, just the volume of content is, you know, going up. So it's probably becoming a worse problem for more people as well. So it's, it is really good to see a response. Yeah. Yeah. So good, good conference overall. I think by the end of the first keynote, I was like, <laughs> I want to work for the FBI. So if you, <laughs> if you, you know, don't see was me in a while, Oh yeah. I was getting to drive a Porsche for an hour, like, you know, from a, a bus stop. Um, yeah. If you don't see me for a while, it's cause I'm in training at Quantico. Um, it did, it, it gave me a lot more hope <laughs> despite all of the, you know, dark things that we were talking about. Um, you know, the types of things that they investigate, the psychological toll that it can take on O centers. Um, but most of the presenters uh, were part of the government intelligence agencies or the military. 
um, and just had great things to say about service um, and understanding that there are many ways that you can serve. There are many ways that you can apply OSINT. Um, they also talked about, you know, civil rights investigations. Um, like I said, mentioned before, poverty, cultural heritage, um, just lots of, you know, different things other than counterterrorism, counter-narcotics, um, weapons trafficking, kind of the, you know, maybe more action-packed uh, routes that you think of in, you know, government and military intelligence. So that was really great. And seemed like you would get a, a wider audience and a more diverse skill set if more people understand that. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was the 2023 Symposium on Open Source Social Media and National Security. Thank you for joining us this week. We'll be back next week with more conversations on OSINT. And as always, you can find us on Twitter at NeedlestackPod or online at Authentic8.com slash Needlesack. That's Authentic with the number eight. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to get new episodes in your inbox. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Thank <laughs> you.